thousand sunsets from ten thousand morning, ten thousand chances to live the right way. But I would trade all my ten thousand sunsets. I could be like Jesus for one single day. I'd walk on the water and heal the sick children, feed all the hungry, give sight to the blind. I'd turn all the cannons and guns into flowers, turn all the whiskey to sacrament wine. That's what I'd do. That's what I'd do. Ten million stars are shining above. But I would trade off my ten thousand rainbows. I could be like Jesus and give all my love. I'd remind the people that hate is an evil thing. Laugh at the children and tell them a tale. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In this segment, we will renew our continuing discussions of the historical narrative of the American industrialist founding of Christian media and parachurch organizations from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and elsewhere in which I encourage you to study in print form to fully digest the information and perspectives offered within it to contemplate. We resume the narrative from my book with the introduction of the particular findings of a somewhat famous American historian on the key figures in mid-20th century Christian media leadership as we now pick up the narrative. The famous, and often seen on television, historian Alan Lickman gives additional details on such related figures in his 2008 book, White Protestant Nation, of which Google Books has uploaded abbreviated sections of it online. There he notes that Sunoco CEO J. Howard Pugh made, quote, substantial contributions, unquote, to libertarian journals, the Freeman, Spiritual Mobilization, and the Foundation for Economic Education, books and films, and, quote, a project of the National Industrial Conference Board for an authoritative treatise to define liberty in spiritual terms as stemming from the teachings of Jesus. And more importantly, he adds that Pew was, quote, financing a Christian right group, the Christian Freedom Foundation, which he founded in 1950 in collaboration with the Reverend Norman Vincent Peale. The foundation sought to reach 
quote, a large number of ministers as possible who will subscribe to the general concept of freedom in all its parts, which of course comprehends economic freedom as well as the others. Howard Kirshner, a conservative journalist, became its first president. Anti-pluralist, white Protestant clergymen held every board position. The Foundation's bi-weekly magazine, Christian Economics, stood for free enterprise, the economic system with the least amount of government and the greatest amount of Christianity. Pew and his family paid to distribute Christian economics to nearly a 100,000 Protestant clergymen, few of whom paid the yearly voluntary fee of $1. At its peak in the early 1960s, the magazine also had a circulation of about an equal number of laypersons. The pews covered most of the foundation's $430,000 first-year deficit. That was in 1950 and kept it breathing for more than 20 years, with the average annual donations of about 300000 Pew monitored the contents of Christian economics, sometimes disputing Kirshner's views. Like Leonard Reed, Kirshner said, quote, The message of Jesus applies to economic law as well as to moral law. They are both God's law. Now, Lickman also provides data and insight on a number of other related figures within the selection of pages that Google Books has excerpted. He notes that oil tycoon Pugh also had an agenda to control the public's concept of big business and unregulated markets, not only through the nation's pulpits, but also academia and institutes of higher learning and classrooms as well. He writes, in higher education, conservatives hope to reassert orthodoxy in economics and culture by replacing academic freedom with the corporate model of control by managers and board members. Quote, the board of directors lays down the policy in a corporation, wrote J. Howard Pugh. He continues, in a college, the Board of Trustees should lay down the policy and all the members of the faculty should carry out that policy. At his personally financed Grove City College, Pew said, quote, from Pew, Chapel is compulsory. The Bible is taught. Academic freedom as practiced is not tolerated. Princeton alumnus and industrialist J.P. Cyberling joined other executives in urging universities to cease the, quote, teaching of socialism under the protection of so-called academic freedom and to begin to educate young people into American concepts and American ideas that were not, quote, watered down by foreignisms, including internationalism. Now, the latter example is an example of corporate-owned knowledge and information community and society at large, which is the libertarian ideal. The 2010 doctoral dissertation of Darren Elliott Graham at the University of Georgia cites pages 215 and 216 of Lickman's book, noting that Billy Graham petitioned Pew to fund his new pet project, Christianity Today, quoting that, quote, apparently convinced by Graham's hard sell, 
Pugh pledged $150,000 and assured Graham and other members of the founding committee that he was, quote, prepared to underwrite the cost for the first year. So that in any event, there will be no problem as to the organization expenses. And added that, quote, to keep up impressions that CT or Christianity Today was a popular magazine disconnected from corporate interest. Pugh funneled the money through Harold Oxenga's church fund and the BGEA or Billy Graham Evangelical Association both of which then made a direct donation to CT, as well as the backer of the hardcore libertarian groups, the Volcker Fund and shoe magnate W. Maxey Jarman of Nashville in similar fashion. Lakeman's book also notes that, quote, Graham assured the tycoon that the editors were not going to allow anything to appear in the magazine that will conflict with our views on economics and socialism or contradict our basic policies hammered out at board meetings. Henry, Carl Henry, the co-founder, agreed. We are sure that at bottom our political economic ideals are largely one, which Graham also cited. Graham also wrote that articles on, in Christianity Today quote, lauded volunteerism and the limitation of government to a police function, criticized the payoffs, threats, blackmail, violence, and disruptions of labor unions, pushed for the replacement of, quote, inherently anti-Christian forms of welfare statism with voluntary charity and personal philanthropy, and warned that public welfare programs saps individual initiative increases the size and cost of sustaining bureaucracy, and at least assures some form of totalitarian control that spells the death of democracy. Now, Lichtman also notes that Pew's Pew Charitable Trust also funded Doug Coe and what was known as his, quote, Secretive Fellowship Foundation, informally known as The Family, as its budget topped one million dollars by the late 70s sponsoring prayer groups throughout the top tiers of government and the national prayer breakfast and conducting covert international diplomacy through its privately connected government officials and connected figures as its budget swelled to exceed 10 million dollars by the start of the 21st century lichtman also briefly discusses spiritual mobilization with its own internal study stating that Quote, spiritual mobilization as a movement is mistrusted by most of the ministers as a possible fascist movement, using the church as a front behind which to save the entrenched employer interest and big business, a tacit admission by their own findings that correlates with the views expressed in this work of this book, and that, quote, in turn, businessmen feared that a contribution to spiritual mobilization was sure to be dubbed propaganda, and business will be charged to have ulterior motives in attempting to sell the American way of life through ministers, according to the Sylvania president. <clears throat> now, Lichtman also mentions another wealthy oil man funding the libertarian and conservative front that most people are not aware of. Oil man William F. Buckley Sr., the father of conservative icon 
and East Coast stuffed shirt aristocrat William F. Buckley Jr., who stated that, quote, capital, or the captains of capitalistic industry and finance, must be, quote, interested in upholding our institutions. Otherwise, quote, it is too much of a task for the rest of us to do the whole job. Lickman adds that Williams Sr. envisioned a political career for his son to combat conservative types he identified, such as the, quote, the Young Republicans Club, which I, Sr., understand is dominated by radicals, mostly Jews. Buckley Sr. raised his children in Mexico, South America, London, Paris, and the United States, sending the children to private schools. When he migrated to Mexico in 1908, Buckley Sr. represented U.S. and European oil companies as a lawyer there and became a president of a local oil company. He also was appointed a legal counsel by Mexican President Huerta, who himself had instigated a coup and assassinated the prior president and other top officials, leading a brief brutal regime until he abdicated, fleeing to the U.S. until he was caught brokering a deal with German intelligence to arm him to overtake Mexico again, and in turn help Germany win a war against the U.S. Buckley then leased oil lands in Mexico, and was offered to be the civil governor of Veracruz by President Wilson as the U.S. was occupying it. He later formed a lobby group to permit Americans to own Mexican land and oil rights that their 1917 Constitution forbade, causing him to be expelled by Mexico, moving on to cut deals with oil companies in Venezuela and then Israel, Guatemala, and other countries. Lickman also briefly discussed Reverend Carl McIntyre, who founded the hard-right American and International Councils of Christian Churches, his political lobbying organization, his monthly publication, Christian Beacon, and his radio show, The 20th Century Reformation Hour, which began in 1955, airing on more than 600 stations. McIntyre brought within his ranks preacher Billy James Hargis, and his Christian Crusade organization in the early 1950s, the latter having claimed that his helium balloons with many Bibles flown over the Iron Curtain had helped inspire the Hungarian people to revolt. The crusade included a Christian Crusade magazine, other literature, radio and television broadcast, and training schools for Christian conservatives. By the late 60s, Hargis was bringing in more than a million dollars a year and his broadcast aired on 500 radio and 250 television stations. Although, quote, in the 1970s, his enterprises would crumble after he admitted having sexual relations with male and female students at a college he founded, unquote. Another one of McIntyre's protégés was Fred Schwartz and his Christian anti-communism crusade, teaching how, quote, liberal theology, unquote, was connected to communism. With his 1961 event at the Hollywood Bowl featuring Ronald Reagan, John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and others, as millions watched on television, sponsored by Richfield Oil, Schick, the Razor People, and Technicolor. Lickman adds that McIntyre also mentored a young minister named Francis Schaefer, 
whose work inspired many evangelicals in the 1970s, and who served as the Foreign Secretary of the American Council of Christian Churches until breaking with McIntyre in 1956. McIntyre was a separatist, fundamentalist, Calvinist, Presbyterian, known for outrageous stunts such as pursuing the building of a full-scale Noah's Ark or Temple of Jerusalem, or operating a seaborne pirate radio station, but was combative and lost all of his vast religious empire before his death. Now, <clears throat> there was a lot to digest in this brief segment. In addition to oil tycoon J. Howard Pugh's prostitution of Christianity to promote the profit agenda of big business and its lower tax and regulation and anti-labor elements, historian Lickman reveals the chutzpah of beloved evangelist Billy Graham courting Pew and promising to promote his pro-business, anti-labor views cloaked in Christianity, which he said they shared, and guaranteed it in exchange of 30 pieces of silver in transaction, or in his case, much more. Pew subconsciously knew the ugliness of his agenda, thus seeking to launder the money through a church to Graham to keep it out of public scrutiny, or the gullible Christian community. We also see that Pew wanted to use corporate board control extended to all areas of society, quenching even the freedom of academia to be rather decided by the money men for the best interest of the profiteers running the board. In volume three of this book series, we will show that not only Pew had reasons to fund the murky Washington secret organization known as the Family and the National Prayer Breakfast, which you both have maybe heard about, but also another tycoon of a very different sort and with a very different, at least overtly, religious belief. We're going to take a break from our narrative from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which is available in print form and ebook form at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other retailers. And I encourage you to obtain a copy and study it to contemplate the significance of its horn of plenty of revelations. When we return to the review of my book, we will learn much more about the second generation of Christian media moguls, and in particular, the forgotten but very influential and sinister Billy James Hargis. However, our next segment will be our normal mid-show contemporary intelligence briefings. Before that, however, it is time for some music for meditation. This is going to be another incidence, come to think of it, the next segment too, of playing a, a song that reveals the, quote, mind of the times, unquote, that still persists today, but to the average listener, to be highly offensive and in poor taste, in addition to being woefully dated. But I play them to reveal to the younger set of listeners the roots of the culture that formed the minds of the older generation. In the late 60s and early 70s, there was a conservative, bigoted pushback in country music to the rise of the hippies and liberal establishment, often directed at hippies and war protesters. This song pertains to a topic I often heard about in my blue-collar upbringing and culture, that of welfare abusers, which still persists today, in spite of a more accurate data, such, such as I show in my book. And its tropes are still perpetuated in conservative media today, which J. Howard Pugh and his industrialist cronies promoted and popularized in their day. <laughs> 
Lower-income white communities like my upbringing would grin mischievously and snicker when such appeared on the radio or TV, like a naughty racist joke. Guy Drake was born in 1904 and played one of the common hick, backward hayseed types telling corny jokes that was common in country shows of the late 60s and 70s. Little is available online about him, except when he hit recording gold with his 1970 bestseller song, Welfare Cadillac, expressing the zeitgeist of the times. His one album of that title had songs such as, quote, Sex Education, Politic and Pete, and The No Smoking Plot, and Marching Hippies. But Cadillac earned him a coveted spot on the Porter Wagner TV show and pop culture immortality. As cringeworthy as it is, listen to these words that uh, which portray a stereotype much like anti-Semitic tropes that will not die and still sell big on conservative media that must be acknowledged and corrected. Experience Welfare Cadillac, and then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. Well, I've never worked much. In fact, I've been poor all my life. I guess all I really own is ten kids and a wife. This house that I live in is mine, but it's really a shack. But I always managed somehow to drive me a brand new Cadillac. Back door steps, Aiden fell plumb down. Front screen doors often laying somewhere out there on the ground. Wind just now whooped another piece of that old tar roofing off the back. Sure hope it don't skin up that new Cadillac. Front porch poster, they'll lose the bottom. Ain't no, made no sense fix them cause that floor just too darn rocky. Wintertime, we sometimes have some snow blows into the cracks. It's too bad we just all pile up and sleep out there in that new Cadillac. Now, I know the place ain't much, but I sure don't pay no rent. I get a check the first of every month from this year federal government. Every Wednesday, I get commodities by sometimes four or five sacks. Pick them up down to welfare office driving that new Cadillac. Now, some folks say I'm crazy, and I've even been called a fool. But my kids get free books and all them are free lunches at school. We get peanut butter and cheese, and man, they give us flour with a sack. Of course, them welfare checks, they meet the payments on this new Cadillac. Now, the way that I see it, uh, these other folks are fools. They're working and paying taxes just to send my young ones through school. Salvation Army cuts their hair and gills the clothes we wear on her back so we can dress up and ride around and show off this new Cadillac. But things still gonna get better yet, or at least that's what I understand. They tell me this new president put in a whole new poverty plan. 
Well, he's gonna send us poor folks money. They say we're gonna get it out here in stacks. In fact, my wife's already shopping around for her new Cadillac. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In this segment, I wish to briefly mention developments in the Christian denomination of my upbringing, up to age 42 in fact, that being the largest Protestant denomination in America, the Southern Baptist. I have written and stated that I am grateful for my Southern Baptist upbringing and my Church of Christ school influence as well, learning the basics of how God loves me and the beauty of God's path to restore and make our personal relationship intimate and eternal and give meaning to how I plan my life and each day. I am particularly grateful that Baptists and other evangelicals not only plan to grow from teaching their own children and baptizing them and making them part of their culture, but rather going out and spreading the good news to others, persuading or at least informing them of the free restoration of unity with God offered to everyone, or what they used to call, quote, rescuing the perishing. Many have seen some older attempts in films to witness to others with what sounded like corny canned pitches, but many of those altar conversions were real and life-lasting and worthy of the tears shed there. This was plainly mandated in their gospel scriptures, where they were told that, quote, fields were widened to harvest. Sadly, they and other evangelicals, at least since the rise of the religious right in the late 70s and other culture warriors, lost their way. With the influence of anywhere from Hal Lindsey's Bible prophecy to conspiracies like QAnon and Trumpism, they now just see enemies behind every bush in those white fields and either want to machine gun down the field to take it over in dominionist fashion or retreat to the Masada-like bunker along with their kids and withdraw until Jesus returns, ultimately sacrificing their birthright of spiritual blessing, intervention, and advocacy for the, quote, lame and blind on the highways of life. Meanwhile, the Southern Baptists are hemorrhaging members, just like other evangelical and organized religion groups. Society around them is changing, just like when they resisted racial integration of church congregations and schools, and still do, and found Bible passages they thought justified such. Many denominations are struggling with the LGBTQ ordination issue and trying to harmonize their position with society and their scriptures, although most, most have moved on beyond this issue. We will now see how wisely and Holy Spirit-led the Southern Baptists are diagnosing their problems and how they are fixing their fading societal relevance to retain their spiritual shepherding role over their society far beyond the LGBTQ issue. During this, remember what Jesus told the top religious leaders of his day. You see signs in the sun, moon, and stars, but you can't see the signs of the times. Now, the Religion News Service organization reported on June 14, 2023, that, quote, Delegates to the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting affirmed a decision to expel two Southern Baptist churches, including Rick Warren's Saddleback Church in Orange County, California, because they employed women as pastors. 
the churches had appealed to the meeting, the denomination's ruling body, to be allowed to remain. Both churches were denied by a strong majority of the delegates, known as messengers, in vote outcomes announced Wednesday, June 14th. The body affirmed the ouster of Saddleback by a vote of 9,437 to 1,212. The vote went against Fern Creek Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, a church around where I used to hang out, by 9,700 to 806. After the drama of Tuesday's session at the annual meeting, when representatives of the church were given three minutes to appeal the decisions made by the SBC's executive committee earlier this year, the announcement of the vote totals on Wednesday was greeted with muted applause, but mostly silence from the meeting floor. Saddleback, whose case was argued by founding pastor and best-selling author Rick Warren, had been ousted for naming Stacy Wood, wife of Warren's successor Andy Wood, as teaching pastor since she and her husband arrived at the Lake Forest, California megachurch last summer. Warren and the Reverend Linda Barnes Popham, who leads the Louisville Church, each argued that Baptists don't agree on a range of matters, from Calvinism to COVID-19, but that hadn't halted their ability to have a shared commitment to spreading the gospel. R. Albert Moeller, Jr., name you may have heard of, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, argued against keeping either Saddleback or Fern Creek within the Southern Baptist fold. He said the idea of women pastors, quote, is an issue of fundamental biblical authority that does violate both the doctrine and the order of the Southern Baptist Convention, unquote. Newly reelected SBC President Bart Barber appeared before the outcome of the votes were announced to urge an appropriate response. Quote, I believe in the sanctity of marriage, but I know sometimes in our churches people wind up in biblical divorce, he said. Quote, but we don't throw divorce parties at our church, okay? After Baptist responded with applause, he added, And whatever these results are, I'm asking you, behave like Christians, okay? Warren said he took on the appeal for the sake of pastors of other churches who don't have the same kind of platform that he does and who worry that SBC leaders will come after them. They can't hurt me, he said. Warren criticized the move for its short-sightedness. Quote, it's really not really smart when you're losing a half a million members a year to kick out people who want to fellowship with you, he said. The retired pastor, known for his wisdom on the topic of planning and growing churches, said, quote, the messengers voted from conformity and uniformity, not unity. The only way you can give unity is to love diversity. He added, Truth wins out over tradition. Popham was equally undaunted. Dressed in a green t-shirt from her church's children's music program, the pastor said the church will keep doing what they've been doing for decades. Last week, she said, three kids in the church had accepted Jesus as their savior during the church's vacation Bible school. Quote, I think God has greater things for us now because the God we serve is so much bigger than the Southern Baptist Convention. Unquote. She said, adding, I need to say, thank you, Southern Baptist. You've given us great publicity. The closely watched decisions about women pastors demonstrated 
that many Southern Baptists remain committed to the Baptist faith and message, their doctrinal statement that declares, quote, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Now the appeals that reached the convention floor on the first day of the two-day meeting marked a new juncture for Southern Baptists. When the executive committee announced in May this would occur, its chairman, David Sons, called it, quote, the first time in SBC history for this particular item of business to come before our convention. Now, on June 15th, the day after, the Religion News Service also published an editorial by a staff rabbi in which he shares in edited form here, quote, as Buffalo Springfield famously sang, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Actually, it's becoming exactly clear. Consider what's happened to the Reverend Linda Barnes Popham, who's been the pastor at Fern Creek Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky for 30 years. Actually, it's been a third of a century. She received a letter. Now, just think about how long she's pastored. She received a letter stating that officials of the Southern Baptist Convention had received a complaint about her church being led by a woman. The denomination it was investigating, it said. Now, you're probably asking yourselves, this is him speaking, why are you commenting on another faith community? You would be right. Normally, I would respect the scriptural interpretations that would dictate how another faith manages its polity. Normally, I stay in my own lane, theologically, but these are not normal times. What has happened within the Southern Baptist system has implications that will resound far longer than the last notes of Sunday's final hymn. First, it makes me think about women in the ministry. It makes me think about the struggles of my women colleagues who fight exclusion, significant income disparities, sexism, and most horrifically, sexual harassment. For that reason, as a rabbi, I extend my hands in sympathy and in solidarity with my women colleagues in those churches. Suddenly, their very presence is anathema, threatening the communal status of their churches. I am proud that my male colleagues in those churches, including and especially the formidable Rick Warren, have stood up in support of those women. When I view this situation through the lens of modern Jewish history, this is what I remember. The Jews and rights in Germany, uh, the Jews had rights in Germany, and then they lost those rights with devastating consequences. Women have the right to be pastors, and then they lose those rights, or more precisely, their, their churches lose the right to be part of the denomination. Fighting for and winning rights is never a one-shot deal. It's ongoing. Rights once earned can become rights that are lost. But let me go beyond the ministry and beyond Jewish history. This is why I choose to comment on this situation. It would be one thing if this were simply a random decision by a significant Protestant denomination. But I cannot see this Southern Baptist moment in isolation. This is just another chapter, a small chapter you might say, in a pernicious war against women's rights. I believe there is a straight line from the war on women's control of their health care to the smaller but significant war on women's ability to serve as pastors. This is a war the right wing is waging. Roll back women's rights. Let me widen the lens for you. 
If you are looking for the symptoms of incipient fascism in this country, pay attention to the signs. The growth of anti-Semitism, a parallel growth of misogyny, and a powerful growth of anti-LGBTQ hatred. Bigots become confused when the objects of their mistrust and contempt fail to know their places. Jews, women, blacks, LGBTQ people, immigrants, they should know what they deserve and they should be happy with what they get. So, a multi-pronged war against women, LGBTQ Americans, Jews, immigrants, books, ideas. Oh yes, it's quite clear. Take a look at the hordes who are cheering for former President Trump in the wake of his indictment and arraignment. Take a look at those who would dismantle a woman's right to her sacred profession and would punish those churches that have the sacred audacity to let women serve as pastors. Those societal forces are all connected. Believe me, I know. I live in the state of Florida. Someone recently asked me if I thought that Florida 2023 was in danger of becoming Germany 1938, as in Kristallnacht. I respectfully demur. However, the way to prevent a 1938 is to start paying attention and say 1922 and to recognize the warning signs. The true parallel between those dark times and our time is the temptation to complacency, the fear that we might all become, quote, good Germans. No, the danger is not that we are returning to 1938. The danger is that we might return to 1958, back to the 50s, back to Leave it to Beaver, back to the imagined mythic America of white picket fences, to women who did not work outside the home, to queer folks in the closet, and to an America where blacks were still in the back of the bus and where Jews and other ethnic and religious outsiders faced serious restrictions. That is the imagined, quote, America of MAGA. So if you are surprised Southern Baptists are turning against churches with women pastors, then you simply have not been paying attention. It is all part of the same societal struggle. Will the forces of hatred, misogyny, social exclusion, and anti-intellectualism win? It is time for all of us to say, not on our watch. Well, that was the rabbi speaking. Now, myself, as a Christian and a former Southern Baptist, I ask some different questions. For a woman who has served faithfully as a pastor at a church for a third of a century, at a major church with no complaints or congregational crises, was this the time the ambitious denominational leaders and their rabble with them decided they had to take action? What did their cheers at ejecting their fellow Christian co-laborer bodies, who had shown much fruit from the Lord born over that time, reflect on the crowd of Baptist professional and lay leaders themselves? With not only the crisis of falling membership and organized religion participation in total, widespread homelessness and drug addiction, refugees all over the earth, a climate spinning out of control, did they see this? as needing most urgent attention? How does this demonstrate their wisdom and their ability in providing challenging spiritual guidance and relevance to society and its needs? Do they believe this act will actually expand the kingdom of heaven they claim they are called to expand from their founder? 
And what does it reveal about their deepest priorities and motivations? To those churches in crisis over this issue and desiring to maintain their commitment to Scripture, I remind them that their founder never commented on pastors, limitations on the service of women, nada. Of course, he never suggested having paid professional church leaders like the Pharisees either. And if you don't ordain anyone and just do what Jesus says, this whole issue is a non-starter. Well, I'm just saying. Now, related to the Southern Baptist story, I think I have found a new theme song for the Southern Baptist Convention for our music for meditation. They can forgo any royalties or finder's fees to me, but it will help promote their primary message and emphasis these days. It was recorded in 1981 by a mysterious group on a 45 known as the Normal Majority, and it is called In the Kitchen. If you are a proud Southern Baptist, please enjoy this proud anthem of your new mission and vision of the future, and then we'll be back to the Two Spies Report. I thank the Lord I was born a boy, just playing and relaxing is such a joy. I don't clean house or wash the dishes, the Lord made those chores for the missus. So wash it in. Welcome back to the Two Spies Report. I'm Mike Bennett. In this segment, we will renew our discussions of the historical narrative of the industrialist founding of Christian media and parachurch organizations from my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven 
of the Pharisees and talk radio and cable news, which is available at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and elsewhere, which I encourage you to study in print form to meditate on his message. We now resume our narrative for my book with the beginning of additional details as to the titan of fundamentalist media in the 1960s and 70s and mentor to the Jerry Falwell era, Billy James Hargis. According to the obituary of Hargis in the London Guardian newspaper, like many other press accounts, the IRS removed his religious organization's tax exemption because of its overt political emphasis and noted in 1976 that Time magazine reported that two students from his American Christian college who married alleged that both discovered each had lost their virginity to Hargis, while a, quote, number of male choir members accused him of coercing them into sex, justifying his seductions by quoting the example of David lying with Jonathan, unquote. Allegations which Hargis said were due to communist and Satan conspiring against him, but he was inevitably forced to resign from his from the college. They also note that in his 1985 autobiography, My Great Mistake, he wrote that, quote, I was guilty of sin, but not the sin I was accused of, unquote. The highly regarded monthly magazine, This Land, which specializes in the greater Oklahoma region, reported in a 2012 investigative work on Hargis that the FBI sought Hargis in connection with the 1959-1960 bombings in protest of the desegregation of Little Rock, Arkansas schools, adding that, quote, according to the FBI special agent Joe Gasper, Hargis was planning to bomb the Philander Smith College in Little Rock soon. The preacher had recently met with two other bombing suspects at a Memphis restaurant. They noted his pro-segregation sermons and affiliation with the pro-segregation Major General Edwin Walker, who was in command of the Arkansas Military District in Little Rock. Hargis preached that the entire civil rights movement was a communist plot, while Walker began interacting with the John Birch Society, who proposed that President Eisenhower himself was a communist. While deployed and commanding U.S. troops in Germany, Walker began intensively programming them with Bircher materials to the approval of the Pentagon until his anti-government materials were exposed by the press. President Kennedy warned that such people equate the Democratic Party with the welfare state, the welfare state with socialism, and socialism with communism. They object quite rightly to politics intruding on the military, but they are anxious for the military to engage in politics. Now, he was relieved of his command, and in turn, Walker did not recognize the presidency of Kennedy as legitimate, nor his position as commander-in-chief, and resigned. Hargis was nominated to be the president of We the People in 1959 and held its first Tea Party, yes, that's back the original Tea Party, in 1962, to end the taxes, treason, and tyranny of the left. Hargis stepped down from the presidency to make way for Ezra Taft Benson, quote, who referred to America's South as Negro Soviet Republic, unquote, 
and who later served as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The FBI questioned Hargis about the Little Rock bombings and continued to monitor him while he called the NAACP a communist plot. And in his book, The Negro Question, Communist Civil War Policy, he stated that segregation was one of God's natural laws and called Martin Luther King a communist-educated traitor and a Uncle Tom for special interest. Hargis and retired General Walker then began a speaking tour together as Walker soon thereafter ran for governor of Texas with the financial support of oil man H.L. Hunt. Walker then tried to stop the attendance of a black man at the University of Mississippi. In the ensuing riot, six federal marshals were shot, and Walker was arrested for sedition and insurrection against the U.S. in 1962. The all-white jury in Mississippi later decided not to indict Walker, not calling in the key black witnesses. Hargis and Walker resumed their speaking tour called Operation Midnight Ride, sponsored by the Ku Klux Klan in South Carolina and Arkansas. And, quote, Hargis told the New York Times that most of his funding came from oil companies, unquote. In Los Angeles, the John Birch Society presented Walker with a plaque calling him the, quote, greatest living American, unquote. Now, listen to this. In 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald fired into Walker's home, barely missing him. This was just right before the JFK assassination. By November 17, 1963, Har- Har- this is right before President uh, Kennedy arrived, Har- uh, Hargis, Walker, and George Wallace were speaking in Dallas in opposition to Kennedy, with Walker running ads denouncing him then in the Dallas Morning News. The president was assassinated there five days later. They add that, quote, not long after Hargis' scandal, General Walker, I hear this, fondled an undercover policeman in the restroom of a public park in Dallas and was arrested for public lewdness. Twice, Walker pleaded no contest and paid a fine. President Reagan returned Walker to an active status in the Army at age 73, allowing Walker to enjoy full military benefits. Another major work that further confirms many of these aforementioned statements of fact with additional source material, as well as adding additional details, is the book The Conservative Press in the 20th Century America, excerpts of which are available online at Google Books. In a chapter entitled, quote, Christian Economics, 1950 to 1972, unquote, they note that J. Howard Pugh, quote, served nearly 40 years as chairman of the United Presbyterian Foundation, devoting much time and energy resisting the social action movements within his denomination and in the National Council of Churches, unquote. And that, quote, Pugh, who never served in any official capacity in CFF, or the Christian Freedom Foundation, but nevertheless ensured its financial viability, intended to use Christian Economics magazine as the primary weapon in his ideological struggles, and he shared with Kirshner the role of ideological guardian of the journal. But he was also instrumental in establishing and financing Christianity Today as another weapon for his fight. They add that, quote, just as CFF 
provided an institutional base and tax-exempt status for the Christian economics, which incurred most uh, of the cost and also provided most of the organization's visibility. So Pugh contributed money while Kirshner contributed his journalistic experience. Through CFF, Kirshner made contacts with numerous other conservative organizations, and he gave them access to the pages of Christian economics. This organizational cross-fertilization exposed a large number of the clergy to the appeals of ultra-conservatism during the 1950s and 60s. With spokesmen of the Christian anti-communism crusade and the John Birch Society finding, quote, a positive reception in the pages of Christian economics, unquote. While Kirshner lectured at places like Harding College, I believe a Church of Christ college, and Pepperdine University, also Church of Christ. Now, they write that of the 430000 provided to CFF, or the Christian Freedom Foundation, in its first year, from, quote, cash donations and stock transfers from Pew Family Trust, averaging 300000 annually for almost 25 years, also paid for sermonettes to nearly 1,500 churches and for the production of newspaper columns and Howard Kirshner's commentary on the news. A 15-minute program carried by more than 150 radio stations. They quote him as explaining that, regarding Christian economics, our main drive is to set forth the errors of socialism and to show the soundness of free market economics. And that socialism, welfare statism, is a reversal of God's plan for man. They add that within Christian economics, Kirshner, quote, praised Senator Joseph R. McCarthy, Republican of Wisconsin, and the John Birch Society, unquote, within church social action movements as essentially Marxist, calling his fellow Quakers that, that socialist society of friends, and, quote, defending the apartheid of Rhodesia and South Africa, as well as racial segregation, unquote. He told a correspondent that, quote, the best authorities agree that the Listen to this. Negro race is some 300,000 to 400,000 years behind the white race in its evolutionary development. This is the most influential uh, person and journalist in Christian, conservative Christian culture for decades. They write that, quote, interviews conducted by the Opinion Research Corporation with 311 Protestant ministers in Philadelphia, Cincinnati, and Atlanta in 1953 indicated that 15% of the respondents relied heavily on Christian economics for information about social, political, and economic issues, and that 85% of the ministers receiving Christian economics said they read it regularly or occasionally. The data in this book, my book that I'm citing, that you are reading, show that ideological media outlets targeting conservative Christians and clergy, funded by big business and other backers of questionable agendas, did not originate with the Christian Broadcast Network, Sean Hannity, or Fox News, but the latter modern-day examples built on their legacy with the same messages, techniques, and agenda. Well, I think you've seen from the information from my book in this last segment the real values of the industrialist founders of Christian media. How does it comport with the values of Jesus and the Gospels? Do these well-funded media leaders compare their values carefully with Jesus in their pages? Or just with the vague Americanism spirituality? 
of whom few will recognize the difference, even conservative clergy, sadly. We see this is true even of the third rail figures that you dare not criticize, even more so than the Bible and Jesus, well, that being Billy Graham and Christianity Today. I think we get the ultimate answer as to their values and convictions in the lifestyles and demise of conservative Christian titans like Reverend Hargis or General Edwin Walker, a story of hypocrisy and ugliness that we see repeated every year in our Christian leadership circles. Well, friends, that's another edition of the Two Spies Report. In our next edition, we'll continue our review of my book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees and Talk Radio and Cable News, which I encourage you to obtain in print or ebook form, either at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or other sites, to review this and far more expansive material on the subject matter. Please send any comments about the show or questions to twospiesreport at gmail.com. T-W-O, spies, report, gmail.com. These are for questions or comments to discuss on the air. Please make a note if it's not to be shared and broadcast. Please join us back here at 5 p.m. Central each Thursday at Radio Free Nashville, WRFN at 107.1 and 103.7 FM on the dial, or streaming live online at www.radiofreenashville.org. See you next Thursday at 5. Until then, keep exploring like the two spies, assessing and staying positive, and being willing to stand against the crowd. Good evening. Walking down the road with the good book in my hand, telling all my friends.